It was completely dark. I see him standing at the back door. Bam! He's getting some kind of sick thrill from what he's doing. He just got pleasure in inflicting pain on other people. As soon as I walked in, the blood had just soaked all the way through. He looked over his shoulder as I drew my weapon. He chased her, he hit her with an axe handle. A blunt instrument to beat the victims to death. It was just so brutal. There was no emotion. He's a serial killer. Traumatic, it was devastating. It was like front page news. It was like a big deal. I mean, it was always there every day. Thank God we stopped me. Take me back and just sort of walk me through what you recall about the beginnings of that. Yes, I, uh, I was actually working graveyard. I had just been on uh, my own for about six months at that point. I had just finished field training. Back in the summer of 1984, Yuta Chambers was a rookie cop in Henderson, Nevada. In those days, it was a quiet town a little more than 10 miles from the Las Vegas Strip, a town where nothing much happened. Yeah, our, we had um, maybe 40 or 50 officers at the most, um, less than 30,000 people. It was a very nice little community. We all knew each other. Um, it was very tight-knit. Back then, was it the bedroom community for Las Vegas, or how would you describe it? Um, yes, it was. We had, um, actually, Henderson has its origins in the basic magnesium plant, um, which was used in World War II, uh, made munitions and all that type of stuff. So it was kind of an industrial uh, community around the, that industry. But then as time went on and uh, the war ended, then it uh, housed, um, you know, workers from Vegas and all that. Yuta Chambers would end up spending 29 years with the department before retiring as the police chief in 2012. But today, as she looks back on her career as a cop, there's one shift she has never forgotten. A shift that began on a Thursday evening. When we went to briefing, which was around 10 o'clock at night, we were told that earlier that day there had been an escape at um, one of our gas stations, that two deputies from Arizona were transporting a burglary suspect um, back to their jail, and that when um, they stopped for gas, he had to go to the bathroom, and he escaped from them, um, and they hadn't found him. They had done an extensive search all afternoon and hadn't found him, and so we were kinda, you know, uh, aware of all of that. As Yuta Chambers' night on patrol started, um, yes, it's, it's the, police department. the first two 911 calls came in. Um, a man in the neighborhood. Uh, uh, Ringing doorbells, running through yards. So we went, we had gotten a call uh, right after briefing, so around 10.30 or so in the evening, that there was somebody up in the neighborhood. What were those calls about? Turns out they were about Alex Christopher Ewing. I'm Kevin Vaughn, an investigative reporter at Nine News in Denver. This is part two of Blame, the fear all these years. We're telling the story of inexplicable hammer attacks in January 1984 that left four people dead and sent shockwaves through the Denver community. Attacks that would go unsolved for more than 30 years. Attacks with a nexus to assaults in Arizona and Nevada that wouldn't be known for decades. So back to Alex Christopher Ewing. We've told you a lot about him in earlier episodes. 
how he's now the prime suspect in those long-ago hammer murders in the Denver area. Patricia Louise Smith on January 10th, 1984. Bruce and Deborah Bennett and their daughter Melissa six days later. We've told you how just 10 days after the Bennett murders, Ewing was picked up in Kingman, Arizona, accused of slipping into a house in the middle of the night and attacking Roy Williams with a 25-pound rock. Bam! Filleting open his head. That attack landed Ewing in a Kingman jail facing an attempted murder charge. And that might have been the end of the chapter, but it wasn't. US-93 cuts an angled path across northwest Arizona and into Nevada. A ribbon of blacktop through the Red Rock Desert. In late January 1984, Ewing sat in a sheriff's van. That van droned up US-93, taking Ewing away from Kingman, where he'd spent the last six months awaiting trial. The Mojave County Jail in Kingman was desperately overcrowded the subject of lawsuits and frequent escapes and other problems. So many problems, it was on the front page of the paper again and again. County is making movie to show jail conditions. County might avoid bidding in jail deal. Judge orders jail's air conditioner fixed. In the midst of all that, Mojave County Sheriff's officials started temporarily moving some prisoners to a jail in Utah. One day, a deputy handed Ewing a one-page release giving permission to temporarily transfer him to the lockup in Utah. I herewith waive those constitutional rights which I have in the state of Utah, or any other rights provided under Utah law, which could allow me to object or otherwise protest my said incarceration in the Washington County Jail. And so it was that Ewing was put in one of those vans with other inmates and driven five hours, up US 93, past the Hoover Dam in Boulder City, past Henderson in Las Vegas, across the desolate Nevada landscape and into St. George in southwest Utah. It was a move that would change the course of his criminal case in Arizona and one day affect the long, cold investigations of hammer murders in the Denver area. Ewing spent 14 days in the Utah jail, but with a hearing in the rock attack case coming up, he was loaded into a van on August 9, 1984 for a trip back to Kingman. There were two Mojave County Sheriff's vans transporting inmates that day. Ewing and four others were in one of the vans, and six other inmates were in the accompanying vehicle, all 11 returning to Kingman for court. By mid-afternoon, the inmates had three hours behind them and a couple more to go. In Henderson, the Sheriff's deputies driving the two vans pulled into a filling station along the side of the highway. They needed gas, and the inmates needed a bathroom break. It was a detour described antiseptically in a police report. Quote, stopped at Coase, Texaco to refuel their vehicle and to allow the prisoners to use the service station's restroom facilities. Close quote. The deputies driving the two vans parked. The two officers stood watch as they unloaded the prisoners in two groups. Six from one of the vans used the restroom first. As the officers watched over them, traffic streamed by out front and shoppers visited the Kmart across the parking lot. The gas station, it was right out of the 60s and 70s. If you were around then, you remember them. A two-bay garage, fuel pumps out front, two restrooms on the side of the building, each accessible only from a door that opened into the parking lot, each big enough for just one person. Tiled walls, a filthy toilet, a sink, probably with a grubby bar of soap streaked with grease resting off to one side. Graffiti. 
The type of bathroom you try to get into and out of as fast as you can without touching anything. After the first six inmates were returned to their van, one of the deputies was loading them back in the vehicle while the other was letting his group of prisoners out to use the bathroom. They went one at a time with that deputy watching over them. It was then, according to a police report, that something went wrong. Quote, one officer apparently turned away for a moment and Ewing ran from the officers toward Kmart, which is to the rear of Coast Texaco. Well, that's one way to put it. The officer involved later testified under oath as to what actually happened. Quote, while we were doing that, Mr. Ewing went to the restroom and on his return, the gas station attendant took my attention off of the restroom area in order to sign for the gas tickets. At this time, Mr. Ewing left. So the officer saw him and gave chase? No. Here's what he said in court. Quote, when I turned back around to make sure everybody was there, one of the other inmates wanted to know where Mr. Ewing was, that he was missing. At 3.11 p.m., Ewing's escape was reported to the Henderson Police Department, a day etched in Uta Chambers' memory. Do you know, did they not realize he was gone right away? Like, did they think he was in the bathroom for five minutes and not? Well, I think first they thought he was just in the bathroom, and then once they discovered that he had actually fled, I think they tried to find him on their own first before they contacted us because, you know, they were transporting a burglary suspect, which is what they told us. They didn't tell us until hours later that, oh, yeah. And an, and attempted, and murder. an attempted murder <laughs> suspect. Um, so it took them a little bit of time. So there was a delay before they contacted us and said, hey, you know, he, this guy escaped from us. So then we started, we weren't overly concerned because they were really downplaying what he had been, what he was being extradited for. The delays Chambers recalls are detailed in police reports about the incident. From one report, approximately one and one half hour after originally responding to assist, HPD officers were advised that Ewing was charged with attempted murder. He was originally described as a nonviolent prisoner. It was not learned until approximately 1830 hours that Ewing was wearing red jogging shorts under the orange jumpsuit. It is unknown how Ewing escaped from the custody of MCSO deputy. There were other problems as well. Documents show that when Ewing was reported as having walked away to Henderson police, he was listed as six feet tall. More than an hour passed before anyone noted that Ewing was no more than five foot seven. And where did he head? Right to the Kmart located a few hundred yards across the parking lot from the filling station, where he was seen wandering in the men's section before he vanished. Police tried to get the word out, issuing a press release. On Thursday, 8-9-84, at approximately 1,500 hours, 3 p.m., a prisoner being transported by Mojave County, Arizona Sheriff's officers escaped in Henderson near U.S. 93 and Basic Road. Alex Christopher Ewing, age 23, 5 feet 7 inches, 140 pounds, short, light brown hair, green eyes, fair complexion, last seen wearing a bright orange jumpsuit, MCSO, printed on the back. Ewing may have changed clothes in a nearby clothing store, also had red jogging shorts as underclothes. Ewing was in custody for burglary, attempted murder, and parole violations. Subject has a violent past. The Henderson Police Department is requesting that anyone who might have seen or picked up a subject hitchhiking in the Henderson area matching the description notify the Henderson Police Department. To no one's surprise, the deputies who'd been transporting Ewing and the others got in trouble. A follow-up investigation would fault them for, quote, failing to use reasonable safety and security measures in transporting prisoners. According to sheriff's officials, quote, Ewing was locked in hand and leg shackles in one of the vans, 
but deputies removed the restraints, sheriff's officials said, to enable the prisoner to leave the van to go to the restroom. Those officials are quoted by various newspapers saying just that, but that apparently wasn't true. In court, one of those deputies testified under oath. There were, quote, no mechanical restraints placed on Ewing when he was picked up in Utah, no mechanical restraints while he was in the van, no mechanical restraints outside the van. The punishment? The deputies were suspended for two days without pay and given additional time off. But all that happened later. Back in real time, Yuta Chambers and her fellow officers on the graveyard shift were in that briefing, about ready to hit the streets, when the 911 call started coming from a rural neighborhood a couple miles from the Texaco station. The quality of the old cassette tape is bad. We found it in an evidence room in a Las Vegas courthouse. It was a woman named Roberta McFarlane. Telling police a man rang her doorbell. Asking her to call a tow truck. Roberta McFarlane wanted an officer to cruise by. What she didn't want was to open her door. The dispatcher's advice was sound. Don't open your door for anybody. Then, six minutes later, another call to police. Emergency. Yes, this is Mrs. Barnfield. I live up on Orleans. Yes, We just saw a man running out there in our yard. This caller lived three blocks from the previous one. We're kind of isolated out here. And she was startled by a man outside her home. Uh, he's got trunk on and no shirt. A man with trunks on and no shirt. Okay, ma'am, he has trunks on. That's what my husband No shirt. Running in her yard. Okay, let me tell you what. I got another car in that area, and a lady said that a man was asking for a tow truck. It was broken down. We got an officer on the way up there. Uh, how long has it been since we saw? Just seconds. Just seconds. Okay, could he by any chance pull the color of the trunk? Uh, uh the color of the trunk. Slow the face. Slow the face. Can you tell the color of the trunk? Can you tell the color of the trunk? Kind of reddish trunk. Reddish? Yes. Reddish trunks. Okay, we're on our way. Thank you. And so the Henderson dispatcher sent officers to the area, including Yuta Chambers. They thought it was suspicious. Um, so we went over there, we couldn't find anything. A little more than 30 minutes later, in another house along Racetrack Road. I was just about to climb into bed. Nancy Berry's plan to crawl under the covers and call it a night was interrupted. And then I heard Josh, my eight and a half month old, just kind of make a little peep. And I thought, uh, before I get, make myself comfortable, I'm gonna go to the kitchen and get a warm up a bottle. So as soon as I walked in, I see him standing at the back door. What she saw was a shirtless man. I don't think he saw me at first. He was looking down the stairs and I was staring, looking at him for a minute before he turned around and saw me. A shirtless man in a pair of red jogging shorts. It was quite a shock. So I, uh, first I'm like, who is that? He resembled my brother-in-law at first, you know, the build. And I was like, oh no, you know, I saw the club in his hand and I just freaked out and jumped and ran to the bedroom where my husband was at. And the next thing I remember is I've got the phone in my hand and I'm dialing zero. 
The next call, the police would change the equation. And I just had a call with a woman screaming in the background, just bad, and sound like someone was beating her. You could hear like a fist or something hitting. Next time on Blame, the fear all these years. Blame is a production of KUSA-TV 9 News in Denver, Colorado, and Tegna Media. Nicole Vapp is executive producer. Anna Houston is producer and editor. I'm your host, investigative reporter Kevin Vaughn. The sound mix was by Richard Humphreys. Additional production assistance from Tim Ryan. There's much more, including photographs, interviews, and some of our old coverage of this case at 9news.com blame. If you like Blame, The Fear All These Years, subscribe at Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or any popular podcasting app. And check out our first two investigative podcasts. Blame, was the death of Jill Wells an accident or murder? And Blame, Lost at Home. You can like us on our Facebook page, Blame Podcast. And if you've got suggestions or tips for a future investigative podcast, reach us at blame at 9news.com. 